0: Heavenly Father, we thank you that it is well with our soul because of Christ. That's the only reason we can sing those those words. Father, it wasn't what we earned, it wasn't what we did, it's what you did out of grace. And that's why we are gathered together here, Lord, to worship you, to speak your praise, to proclaim your greatness and your goodness and your love. Give us ears to hear what you would have to say as we begin our study in the book of Ephesians this morning. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Well, I wonder if you ask someone what they think Christianity is about. I wonder what kind of answers you would get. Certainly, someone might say, well, Christianity is about being a good person. So that means you subscribe to a certain kind of moral rules and you do certain things. Uh, Maybe the flip side of that is uh, you're not a bad person. So you avoid certain behaviors and you exercise some self-control. Uh, they might say it's go- about going to church, so weekly you gather with like-minded people and to worship. Uh, they also might say that Christianity is about acts of service and generosity. Uh, and so you invest your time, your talent, your influences, your resources for causes that are worthy and those who could do, you could do the most good for. Now, I think if you're a Christian, you wouldn't deny that any one of those things is certainly what we do as Christians, but at that point, you probably would want to stop because if you really think about it, if we just changed out one or two of those words, what we've just described is applicable to almost every major religious system in the world, as well as well-meaning atheists and agnostics, right? So at the risk of a majorly oversimplification, when we say what makes Christianity what makes Christianity is, it's not so much the things that people do that are Christians as much as it is what God has already done for His people, right? Christianity does not teach that doing good things to achieve God's favor, as a matter of fact... Christianity teaches the exact opposite, that no amount of good things we ever do will be good enough. And so we have in Christianity an abundance of God's favor lavishly poured out on the people of God in Christ. Christianity is not wondering if I've done enough to earn his approval. It's realizing that because of his grace, he has made me a son or a daughter of the King in Christ, and nothing I do including my own frailty and foolishness, can break those ties. Christianity is not about humanity pulling itself up by its moral bootstraps to be better. It's the Lord saying, you can't be better. Take my strength, my enabling, and live knowing my power. As a matter of fact, if, if your understanding of Christianity doesn't include that, that later section I just discussed, and it only includes that former section, and I know you're waiting for me to fall off. I was talking about, somebody said that this morning. I will not fall off. If I did, you'll never forget that service, though. <laughs> if Christianity does not have that former component, but you only have that earlier part, and those are good things, all of them, but if that's all you have, you actually may be hindered for even understanding what Christianity is, ironically enough. Because in those former things, the emphasis is on our moral efforts. And we can take trust and begin to take pride in our morality. Unless you understand that Christianity is, are those later elements, you will not begin to grow in appreciation for the emphasis of those later elements, which is all on God's grace. And it's only until you realize that Christianity at its core is about the grace of God poured out to those in Christ, it is only then can you begin to even think of Christianity correctly. And so we decided to start a study of the book of Ephesians. Because Ephesians is a book, a letter, all about the grace of God. Paul the Apostle wrote it and he explains in, in, in very major themes that God's grace is seen to us in that God chooses His people, God enlivens His people, God unifies His people, and God enables His people. And He does all of this because of His grace towards us. It's for this reason that Ephesians has been called the Swiss Alps in the mountain range of God's revelation because of the beauty and majesty we see in this book. Ephesians has also been called the Rosetta Stone of Scripture because through Ephesians, many of the themes of the Old and New Testament come alive to us, and we see how they play themselves out in our daily lives. Now, like all of God's revelation to us, all of God's truth to us, comes in a context. Ephesians was delivered to a real group of people in a certain time with a history that we can still really go back to, literally go back to the city and wrap our rounds around the columns and say, this is the city that this letter came to. So this morning, what I want to do as we launch into a study of the book of Ephesians is I want to get a little bit of an understanding of the world that this letter came to, as well as the macro themes of the letter, so we lay a really good foundation that we can build upon in the coming weeks to apply this rich biblical truth in our lives. So we're going to look at the the city of Ephesus, the situation in Ephesus, and the central message of Ephesians. The city of Ephesus, the situation in Ephesus, and the central letter to the Ephesians. And that central message, excuse me, central message, it is God's grace chooses us enlivens us, unites us, and enables us. So let's start with the city of Ephesus. Ephesus, as you may or may not know, is a part of the ancient Roman Empire. And in terms of prestige, this city was right up there along with Rome, the capital in Italy. um, Alexandria, which was in North Africa, or Syrian Antioch, which is in Syria. It was certainly the leading city in what was the richest region of the ancient Roman Empire. It was known as the commercial and administrative hub of all of Asia Minor on behalf of Rome. So when you think of Ephesus as the city, think of it as a hybrid of Wall Street and Washington, D.C. I have behind me a, a, a map of the city or of the land, the region of Ephesus. And, and you can see, it's just a chunk out of a map. In red, you'll see Ephesus there. As you can see, Ephesus was coastal. In other words, it had harbors. That's what added to its commercial importance. I believe Ephesus had two major harbors. And if you can see closely, you'll see a red line, a couple lines there. Those are Roman roads. Ephesus grew and flourished and benefited because of the fact that there were four major Roman highways crisscrossing Asia Minor coming through Ephesus, coupled with the two major ports, it made Ephesus a powerful economic stronghouse. Now you can see a little to the right, you may recognize that word, it's kind of on the mountains there through that valley, it's called Laodicea. So, this is where in Revelation 2 and 3, the seven churches were written to. They're all located in this area. This today is modern-day Turkey. That would be the west coast of modern-day Turkey. Now, in terms of population, during the time of the Apostle Paul, we're looking at possibly 250,000 people living in the city of Ephesus. To give you a sense of scale, the population of Laguna Hills Alicio and Mission Viejo and Lake Forest is 255,000 individuals. So roughly the same amount of individuals in the city of Ephesus as in our area here. Now to give you a sense of what an, a dense urban packed population this was, we, Lake Forest, Laguna Hills and the Viejos, take up about 50 square miles. At Ephesus's height, the city was no more than five square miles. So... The same exact number of people living in about 10% of the land. To to, to make the point even clearer, Laguna Hills, our little neighborhood that we're meeting in right now, is about 6.7 square miles. So imagine everyone in Lake Forest, Mission, and Felicia Viejo, and Laguna Hills all living in our neighborhood. That's Ephesus. Now the reason that's significant is when you think of Ephesus and when you read the New Testament, a lot of times people aren't thinking urban sprawl. Right, You're thinking of probably these rural, maybe ancient areas, villages and huts. But Ephesus was the furthest thing from that. It was a sprawling metropolis known as the metropolis of Asia. It was so huge and so well populated, Ephesus was also a hotbed of religious pluralism. It was known for its magical arts and mystery religions and secret rituals. It became known for those kinds of things. Kind of like... Um, Sedona, Arizona is known for its kind of new ageism, right? Uh, Area 51 is uh, spaceships and aliens. Orange County, we got our real housewives. So that's what the Ephesus was known for, those mystery religions. And no, I don't watch the show, okay? I don't watch the show. You could be in the show and I wouldn't even know it. Anybody in the show? That would be really neat. No, nobody in that show. Okay. I digress. Um, Apart from being this commercial and administrative hub, as I've indicated, uh, Ephesus was a a hotbed of religion. As a matter of fact, Phylon of Byzantium, he was the man who came up with the seven wonders of the ancient world. He listed the temple of Artemis at Ephesus as one of these ancient wonders. So powerful was Artemis in this area and so influential in her connection to the city of Ephesus that the city itself believed that they had a divine covenant with Artemis. Now, I have a picture of what Artemis looks like. She was a goddess of unusual complexity. She was a fertility god, yet she was also a war god. It was a very strange, uh, and, and hauntingly creepy cult of Artemis. It was very, very influential and powerful in the early first centuries of the church. Uh, I have a photograph of where her temple once resided in the city of Ephesus. Now it's in nothing but ruins. Uh, but if you're familiar with the Greek, is it the Parthenon, the Greek Parthenon, that's very similar to what Artemis, the Temple of Artemis once looked like. Now, as you can see, it's just a, a rubble and ruins, but how much of New York would be left after two millennium, right? So, so that's the Ephesus city, and you can see some of the modern buildings built up towards the back. Now, that's the city of Ephesus. What is the situation that these people are dealing with? Now, you will see in your bulletin I have listed on the second point the situation of Ephesus and I have a bunch of scriptures from the book of Acts. We're not going to read those this morning simply because of time. But I really want to encourage you this week, go home and read those, I think three chapters. You can read the whole thing in ten minutes. This is the accounting from Luke about the founding of the church in Ephesus. And it's simply mind-blowing that amongst this this ancient cosmopolitan urban sprawl, God raised up a church that would be a powerhouse in the first centuries of Christianity. You read everything in those chapters of Acts from the church being planted, Disciples who had, who had didn't have a full understanding of the gospel, and yet when Paul and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila would come in and instruct them, they would grow into maturity of faith. All kinds of miracles were taking place. Jewish exorcists who tried to copy what the Christians were doing, being jumped on by demoniacs, being stripped naked and beaten to a pulp. Crazy stuff happening in Ephesus. The economy of the city was in danger because of the growth of the church. In Ephesus, or excuse me, Acts chapter 19, a full-scale city union-wide riot erupts in the great theater. I have a picture of it right here. This, and you can see people standing, so you get a sense of scale. That's the theater, the exact theater in Acts chapter 19 when Demetrius and the, the silversmiths of the city who built... Idols of Artemis, there was such a conversion, radical conversion of people in Ephesus, that their business was going bankrupt. So they gathered in that very theater and chanted for hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, intending to throw Paul and the entire Christian community out of the city. All for economic reasons. And that's all in the book of Acts. We don't have time to read that. But all of that is what's behind the book of Ephesians. And so when Paul talks about this great mystery and all these things that's going on, he's just not pulling stuff out of the air. He knows who he's writing to. When they hear mystery, they understand that there are things that we don't understand in this world. And so Paul is using that, capitalizing on their understanding to bring the gospel to them. And so that's the situation in Ephesus. Now let's look at the central message To the Ephesians. Now, if you have a Bible before you, or if you're using one of our Pew Bibles, it's page 976. I encourage you to open up to the book of Ephesians. And what we're going to do is a nice macro flyover of the book of Ephesians. And I want to talk about the four, kind of give you categories to think about as we study through the book where you can put certain things. Unlike most New Testament books, the book of Ephesians was not written to a particular uh, situation or relational difficulty, like 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and the Thessalonians and the pastoral epistles. Ephesians was just written to minister to the Ephesian church. There's no real close personal addresses. It's just talking about some cosmic, amazing things. And in that way, we get some really cool insight into what God intends for humanity and really the cosmos In a sense, because Paul's not putting out relational fires or persecution, he's pulling back the curtain of divine revelation and saying, hey, peek in here because this is what God is about. Peek in here, get to know what he's doing. Have your mind and vision of who God is expanded and so your worship to grow. And so Ephesians is great for that very reason. And in particular, we see four amazing things of God's grace. How God chooses his people in his grace, how God enlivens his people in his grace, how God unites his people in grace, and how God enables his people in grace. So let's start there. God chooses his people. Again, because this is a little bit of a flyover, I just want you to get you you the sense of what this book's about. So we'll just be reading a couple of passages from a few of these chapters, and we'll dive in in earnest starting next week. So God chooses his people. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Paul writes this, even as he, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, even as he chose us in him. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. This is a really important couple of verses here. See, God is not up there, up there in heaven, wringing His hands, hoping that the people people will respond to His call in the gospel. He has taken the initiative upon himself, as he always does, and chooses us in Christ. Do you read that? It says, Before the foundations of the world, God chose us in Christ. Charles Spurgeon, he was a great uh, Baptist preacher in England in the 19th century, talking about this idea of, of God's choosing of election. And he he writes, God must have chosen me before the foundations of the world because he certainly wouldn't have chosen me after I entered into it. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Now, if you're a Christian, I hope that the reality of the doctrine of election that Ephesians teaches that we're we're just glancing at and we're not even unpacking, but I hope this doctrine brings you comfort and assurance that God is not merely some benevolent being hoping that his plans turn out, and somehow they can get derailed. But that, as a matter of fact, so sure is our salvation in Christ that he says it was happening before an ancient column in the city of Ephesus was ever raised. That if you are a Christian today, God had known about this before Ephesus ever came into being. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're thinking about Christianity, please don't hear me say, nor please don't read the Bible and misunderstand that it's teaching some form of hard determinism, which is a philosophical idea that all events are predetermined and no choices could have been otherwise, that they are what they are. That is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what Christianity teaches. And maybe someday we'll have a class to talk about that. All the Bible is simply trying to communicate here is that God has the power to accomplish his purposes. Evidence in the fact that God chooses his people before his people even knew they had a choice in the matter. Now, people did choose. People actually do choose. But God has decreed those choices that it would be so. I'm just going to stop there. (laughs) Because if that sounds intriguing or confusing to you, keep coming back. Because that won't be the first time. The point I'm trying to get across is that God often challenges us in his word, our notions of what's intellectually, relationally, emotionally, and and even reality possible. So we see God's grace and how he chooses his people. And if you're here there's a good chance that he's chosen you or is choosing you. We have to move on. God's grace seen in God enlivens his people. For that, go to chapter 2. God chooses his people. Notice there's kind of a progression here. He chooses us, and then he enlivens us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God's grace is seen here in making us alive in Christ. Sometimes Paul's profundity is missed because we're so familiar with the Scriptures. Paul is addressing an issue that's very pertinent in modern culture today. And that is this that many people have life, but many people are not alive. Many people have life, but many people are not alive. Now, obviously, Paul's not talking physically, nor am I. Paul is speaking spiritually here. But don't think that because something is spiritually, something is spiritual, that it's not existentially important. Go, what was this word existential? All the word existential simply means is our experience of something. Just because something spiritual doesn't mean it's not existentially important. Some of the most important existential questions, and for those of you who lived through the 60s, you should know what this is. Some of the most important questions of meaning, of purpose, direction, identity, those are spiritual questions. And what Paul is saying is that there are many people who have life but are simply not alive. And he uses this metaphor, hang with me, of Walking to describe the way we live about our lives. Look at verses 1 and 2 of the same chapter. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Okay, stop there. Paul saying that before Christ, all of us were dead in our sins and disobedience. Ian, we used to walk this way. What he's getting at is that, yes, we were going through life. We were going through the motions, eating, drinking, raising a family, holding down a job, taking vacations, but many of us were not really alive. Yeah, we were doing life. If you look on the outside, we were living life, but we weren't actually alive. And for those of you who may have come to Christ in your older years, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know exactly what it is to live this life but not actually be alive until Christ enlivened you by his grace, right? In some sense, in chapter two, verse one, what we're looking at here, Paul is actually making the case, this is for you more younger people, that outside of Christ, humanity is nothing but a bunch of zombies. The walking dead. That's what he says right there. You were dead and you walked this way. Outside of Christ, safe to say that humanity is nothing but a bunch of spiritual zombies. But in God, Christ made you alive, and Ephesians is all about what that means, what that new life is like, how to have it, and how to live it. And so that's the second thing we're going to see all throughout Ephesians, God enlivening his people with new life in Christ. Thirdly is this, God in his grace unites his people. For that, we're going to go to, stay in chapter 2, go to verse 13. But now, notice there's that. I had a friend who preached a sermon once. He, he called it All the Great Butts in Ephesians. <laughs> there are many great butts in Ephesians. Here's one of them. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and his, excuse me, who has made us both one. And has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Okay, what, what, what's Paul talking about here? What is, this, what is this great hostility that's been resolved? Who are these enemies who are now family? If you know your Bible, you know the answer to that. Who's Paul talking about here? He's talking about the hostility between him and us. Right? Paul is addressing that the hostility that existed between God and humanity in Christ has been eradicated. I'm just going to roll the dice here, if you're not a Christian, please don't think that you stand on a morally neutral ground and are acceptable to God simply because you're not a bad guy or girl. The Bible is clear that outside of the grace and forgiveness we have in Jesus Christ, we're not morally neutral against him. The Bible actually says we're in rebellion against him. That we live, as it were, with our fists saying, I know there's a God out there, but I want it to be me, not you. And the Bible describes that as death. But what Paul is saying that in Christ, that hostility, because there can only be one God, right? And by definition, it's not going to be us. That hostility to compete for him as God has been eradicated because of Christ, And now, what once used to be enemies, we are no longer enemies. I no longer fight his rule. I want his rule in my life. And if you're a Christian, you do too. You want God's ways to be in your life. And what Paul is saying is because that wall of hostility has been gotten away with, every wall of hostility that exists on a horizontal plane is now eradicated as well. See, what he's saying is once you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you can now love your neighbor like yourself. Get that. He's just talking about the two greatest commandments. Paul is saying, now you are able to love God. You are now able to love one another. That's what he's getting at. So this hostility has been brought down by the death of Christ. That's what that phrase means, the blood of Christ. Blood is a symbol of his death. And check this out. In Ephesus, imagine this. In Ephesus, you had thousands of Jews who, according to the book of Acts, hundreds of Jews, excuse me, hearing the ministry of Paul in the synagogues, they realize that Jesus is the Messiah, and they convert to Christianity. And they join the church. At the same time, you have hundreds of rank pagans who just came from worshiping Artemis or Zeus or the Egyptian Isis, who heard Paul's ministry in the marketplaces, that's in the book of Acts, and they convert to Christianity, and they join the church, and now you've got Gentiles and Jews living together in the same church. Now you say, what's the big deal? I mean, have have any of us ever been concerned about the Jews and Gentiles hanging out in this church? Has this church ever said, hey, it's that old Jew and Gentile debate. It's coming up again at the business meeting. No, because we don't understand the rank hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles back then. So divisive was it that in there, if you have any Jewish friends, ask them to to take a look at their Jewish prayer book, the Siddur. There's a prayer that says this. This is just one line of it. Blessed are you, Hashim, king of the universe, for not having me made me a Gentile. They would pray this. This was a culture clash of the ages, so much so this was the debate for the early church. The Gentiles and Jews coming together and being, living as one. This is what Acts chapter 15 was all about. By the way unless you're Jewish, they were complaining about us coming into the church, all of us Gentiles. And what Paul is saying, that wall of division has been taken away. Now you two can become one. Guys, let's, let's bring this home because none of us are worried about the Gentile-Jew debates. So let's bring this home. What Paul is saying is that in Christ, by God's grace, there is a unity that transcends everything else that divides us. Churches ought to be places where people can visibly see those people have nothing in common except they got this Jesus in common and that seems to be all they need. That's a church. You find a church like that, you stay in it. By God's grace, we're a church like that. And I love it. And I love as I'm more and more a part of this church, I'm beginning to see the differences. At this church, we've got the, we've got the younger, we've got the older, we've got Republicans and we have some Democrats too. That's great! <laughs> And we got all kinds of other divisions and differences. But all we need is Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not trying to be um, simplistic, right? Because our differences are profound. Culture, where we come from, expectations, that's profound. But what's profounder still is the unity we have in Christ because at the foot of the cross, we're all sinners. And nothing I bring to the table is better than anyone else. And that's true of all of us. I love the fact that at least someplace in our consumer, individualistic, narcissistic culture, there's one institute that it's not about what we want. That's this, right? This isn't Burger King. We don't get it our way. We come to the word of God and say, how shall we ought to live in light of your word? Because it's not about my preference. It's about your priorities. It's not about what I want. It's about what's your mission. And so we all come together saying, you know what? It's not the way I'd like to do it, but that's okay because it's about what God is up to. And what Paul's saying is that is possible because Christ made it possible. I love seeing older people and younger people fellowshipping together. You know, there's a movement in the church, it's called the homogeneist movement. We're all trying to be together, and I've never liked that. I love the fact that we are a church, and by God's grace, we will continue to grow. And when I say the word diversity, I don't mean what they mean in the world out there. I mean real diversity, real distinctions and needs, so that when people come in, what they actually should see is is a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like. People of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and they're all loving each other, living together. And amongst all their differences, all this diversity, there's a beautiful interdependency and unity that displays the beautiful character of God. I love that some of you worship very respectfully and you're somber and you're serious. And we see it in the way you're dressed. You're you're, you're just looking great. You've got these suits on and you're ready or whatever it might be. I love that some of you worship and you're here in shorts and a tank top and slippers and you're raising your hands. Because both people are expressing the same thing. Reverence, joy, and God is both. And we see that in a church. And Paul's saying, that's the unity we have in Christ. And that's even possible because of what Christ has done. And here's the thing. I'm going to end this point on this one. This huge culture clash in Ephesians 2 of the Jew and the Gentile, this huge clash of cultures that we even see in modern times, is not, only, it's not something that happens accidentally. It's by God's design. It's by God's design to display his glory and wisdom. That's what we are as a gathered group of believers. A display of God's glory and wisdom. And read this. You want your mind blown? Keep your finger in Ephesians. Go to chapter 3, read verse 10. Paul's talking about this. Because remember, these Jews, were like, what? The Gentiles? We gotta bring them in. And the Gentiles, like, they just, they just they thank God they're not like me. You are you serious? But this is what Paul says: chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church. The manifold wisdom of God might be made known, and listen to this, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What? Paul's saying this group of people, the church, is a display of the manifold, multifaceted wisdom of God so that rulers and authorities in heaven look down and go, wow. Wow. Did you ever think about that? that our life together is a display of God's wisdom for the heavenly beings, and they just go, I can't believe these people are worshiping God. They're so different, and yet they get along in Christ because of our Savior. Our worship is not just for ourselves. We are encouraging, there it is in black and white. You see it. Chapter 3, verse 10, that we display the manifold wisdom to God in the heavenly places. That's a privilege. So God chooses his people by his grace. He makes them alive in Christ by his grace. He makes them one by his purposes and grace, but there's still one fundamental problem, and that is this. We still live in a world that's at odds with God and his purposes. We still live in a world that does not want to acknowledge a sovereign being and that his purposes trump my desires. We live in a world that wants to challenge the very notion of what life ought to be about. And we live in a world, despite all of our popular calls for diversity and harmony, we still cannot get along. Societies, relationships, marriages, families, fracture and rupture. And this is why we get to the last point, the last display of God's evidence to us, that God enables His people. Let me read to you chapter 1, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Last verse, chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. If living the Christian life depended upon our own strength and clever ability, it would not have lasted past the first century. Thankfully, Christianity is not dependent on our strength or our ability. It's dependent upon the Lord's grace and his faithfulness to us. As we study Ephesians, I want you to make note of um, what I call the power words. There's a lot of power words in Ephesians Strength, power, glory, dominion, greatness, sword, shield, boldness, and all without exception have reference to God's enabling power to his people. See, Christianity is not about doing things as much as it is about what God is doing in the world and his grace extended to us to be instruments of that grace in the world. And finally, last thing, this is kind of a side note. Um, You will find, as we study the book of Ephesians, this particular phrase coming up 22 different times in in, in roughly two different ways, in Christ. It's either in him or in Christ. What's the point that Paul's trying to get us to grab by putting this in 22 different times is that all of these actions of God's choosing and enlivening and uniting and enabling happen in the sphere of being in Jesus Christ. And that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, after all, we call it Christianity, right? Christianity. Some of you may have heard this acronym, um, or it's it's an acrostic, of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at at Christ's expense. If Paul were a marketer, he would have loved that expression because it's capturing exactly what he's trying to say in the phrase, in Christ. And although in Ephesians, grace is given to us in Christ, it is also the same grace that comes from Christ in his earthly ministry. Let me conclude with some, uh, looking at uh, John's gospel briefly so you can connect the dots here. In John fifteen sixteen, Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me, there's that word, I chose you. In John ten ten, 10, Jesus said to the people that the devil came to steal, kill, and destroy, but he came to give life, life abundantly. In John 17, 20, 21, Jesus is praying for the unity of all Christians. Did you know that in John 17, Jesus is praying for you? He actually prays for you and I in John 17. Yes, you're nodding your head. You know exactly that. But when Jesus says, Lord, I don't pray just for them also, his disciples. I'm praying for those who will believe in me on, from their testimony. So he's praying for us. And finally, John fifteen six, where Jesus says, If you're not a part of me, you can't do anything. But if you are in me, you will bear much fruit. So we have all those graces in Ephesians, the choosing, the enlivening, the uniting, the enabling. All in its ultimate manifestation in Jesus Christ himself. So when we think about what is Christianity, at the heart of it, it is God's grace. And at the heart of that, it's God's grace as it's supremely manifested in the person of Christ. That's who we worship. And when we gather week in and week out as we study the book of Ephesians, we want to look at how do we take hold of that grace? How does that grace change us and that vital relationship with Jesus every day? Let's pray.